Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring afterlife geography. My guest is Gregory Shushan. He is the author of Conceptions of the Afterlife in Early Civilizations, Near-Death Experience in Indigenous Religions, and most recently, The Next World Extraordinary Experiences of the Afterlife. We're here in my studio in Albuquerque because Gregory lives nearby in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So, welcome, Gregory. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to be live in the studio face-to-face -face as well. It is a real novelty. <laughs> and thanks, Jeff, for, for having me here. It, it's really a nice great pleasure. And I uh, want to say right now for our viewers that I think nobody that I'm aware of has explored the range of literature purporting to provide largely firsthand descriptions of the afterlife across a, a greater range of cultures and civilizations and eras of time than, than you have. So, this should be a very exciting discussion. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. I hope, I hope so. <laughs> I gather that for you, one of the primary windows into our understanding of the afterlife comes from the near-death experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly it. The, the sort of main thrust of my research has been the degree to which after, afterlife beliefs have been grounded in near-death experiences around the world and, and in different cultures. Of course, the skeptics will say near-death experiences offer uh, a window into uh, human fantasy, but not into, or maybe into the physiology of the brain near death, but not into the afterlife itself. How do you counter that objection? There are a few ways. Um, one is, is if, we, if we take out um, the argument of whether near-death experiences are evidence for an afterlife at all, and just look at them as a possible origin of people's afterlife beliefs around the world. In that sense, it doesn't matter if they're um, genuine afterlife experiences or not. Um, if, it, if it is all in the brain, as, as they say, um, they could still be leading to different kinds of beliefs around the world that share similarities um, with the near-death experience, for example. So, um, but as far as being uh, you know, and in that sense, I guess I should say they they could actually support beliefs that near death experiences are all in the brain because if the dying brain is producing the same kinds of special effects around the world um, in, in people's consciousness as they die, then uh, we would expect their afterlife beliefs to be similar. We'd accept their um, expect their NDEs to be similar. Um, but at the same time, we could also say the fact that uh, people are having NDEs around the world. And having these similar types of experiences that are filtered through their cultural beliefs could also support the idea that there really is an afterlife. So it's um it's kind of a balancing act. Well, you come to this work as a historian and a ethnographer, a, really a social scientist in effect. Right. Yeah, I started in um, Egyptian archaeology actually. So um, and that was kind of my way into it because I was uh, reading. You know, you, you read. Um, to practice hieroglyphs, you start reading 
ancient texts like the Book of the Dead and the coffin texts and pyramid texts. And I started, you know, thinking that the conception of the afterlife in ancient Egypt was, you know, had a lot of similarities to near-death experiences. So just in a very general way, obviously, uh, a contemporary near-death experiencer isn't going to say, I saw the corpse of Osiris and Rosa Tau, you know, it's going to be more like, um, you know, I saw this divine being. So in this very general sense, uh, in the Egyptian afterlife, um, the spirit leaves the body, travels through darkness, um, comes into a, another realm, sees a being of light in the form of the sun god, um, undergoes some kind of evaluation of the earthly life, and then um, meets the corpse of Osiris, who is who is the god of the underworld, but the deceased is uh, explicitly associated with that corpse. So I take that as being symbolic of basically an out-of-body experience and encountering um, you know your own physicality and the and the um, acceptance of the death of that physicality, and that explicitly in the text enables the spirit to proceed in the afterlife to the next level. So understanding that you you're dead but still alive, that you've transcended death, is you know a key uh, element both in those texts and in NDEs. Well, it must be the case that no culture has been more focused on the nature of the afterlife than the ancient Egyptians. Yeah, that's uh, that's probably fair to say. Um, but the the thing is, uh, because uh, the uses to which writing were put um, at the time, we don't have any personal narratives of, you know, um, a particular person died, went to the afterlife, and came back and, and told us this information. They just didn't have personal narratives. They, they barely even had um, you know, literary stories. There's five or six. Most of it is really um, religious text describing the afterlife and ritual behaviors, or it's you know, accounting and state texts and state propaganda and things like that. So um, some of it is, I mean, it's a little speculative to say um, their afterlife beliefs were based on near-death experiences, just based on those similarities. But at the same time, when you then expand that um, comparison and start looking at other ancient cultures and what their afterlife beliefs were like, they they largely share those same types of similarities. So you have to then ask, um, what's going on in the human psyche that's producing very similar beliefs across cultures? And it seems to me that um, a universal experience type, like a near-death experience, which is you know contextually um, is about dying, leaving the body, and coming back. It seems like a, a reasonable place to look for the the answer. Well, some people have that experience. We call it a near death experience because the body is physically pronounced dead or very close to death. Mm. Uh, there's a whole other category of nearly identical experiences that mm. are called mystical experiences where a, a person might be nowhere near death. They might be in a trance or meditating uh, or maybe they're ill or, or something like that or they're uh, religiously devout and they go into a religious swoon of some, mm. some sort. Uh, have you looked at that at all? No, I haven't um, in depth, but I've looked. I've considered those experiences um, in the context of near-death experience because, um, yeah, you're right. And there's also examples where someone is just, you know, happens to be sitting at their desk writing, and they leave their body, and you know, and they're not even near death at all. Yeah. Or a lot of these accounts of people who um, they think they're drowning, or they think they're going to die when they fall from a great height, but they were never physically 
um, compromised, not, not in any serious peril. They survived the, the drowning or the fall. Um, but for, for the, my research purposes, the context of the physical context of a person almost dying, losing consciousness and coming back, I think that's important because um, that's you know showing that there is there's some kind of connection in the origin between those experiences and the kinds of visions that they're having. Well, you also talk about, uh, in addition to the sacred literature of ancient cultures, you talk about mediumship. Right. Uh, uh, you talk about uh, intermission memories of people who have, recall past lifetimes. Right. Yeah. Um, that was, um, yeah, those are, are interesting examples because what I wanted to do there is compare the near-death experience types of, and I don't want to call them visions, but just near-death experience phenomena and the, the types of descriptions people bring back um, with the same types of thing from from those kinds of experiences. Because the idea being, if there are similarities between mediumship descriptions, intermission memories in reincarnation accounts, and near-death experience, then are they all talking about the same thing? And if so, does that point to you know, the idea that they're all describing an actual afterlife kind of experience. What did you conclude? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I concluded that, um, well, for one thing, they do share a lot of those similarities, um, but to varying degrees. So, for example, uh, the intermission memories, uh, and, and I guess I should explain a little bit more in depth. This is when a, a child remembers um, a past life, but they don't just remember the personality of the past life. They remember the death of that personality and then the process of coming into the new body and the new personality. And that corresponds to the near-death experience in the sense that um, they often will remember things like, you know, the mode of their death if they were, you know, hit by a car or died of a disease, whatever, um, and they left the body and they'll remember leaving the body and seeing their corpse sometimes at, at their own funeral, um, about to be buried or whatever. Um, and they remember seeing a being of light going through darkness, all these kinds of very typical near-death experience elements. Um, so with the intermission memories, that was very clearly analogous to near-death experience. And, and there wasn't um, a great deal of sort of literary elaboration where, where a lot of, um, for example, medieval near-death experience accounts are just um, filled with all these um, plot elements, basically. You know, they, they meet a particular angel who takes them on a tour of the other world and uh, they, they see very specific long detailed punishments and they're shown paradise and all these rewards and um, and it's obvious that even if it did originally lie in an NDE that it's not um, really a full uh, veridical account of a near-death experience. There's, you might say poetic license has exactly. been taken. Yeah, yeah. And, and for the purpose of, you know, promoting the religion and, you know, showing people that if you know, you you behave well, then you'll have this great experience, and if you behave poorly, you'll you'll have a negative one. So, um, so yeah, there, were, there was with the intermission memory, memories, there was um, not a lot of cultural elaboration and literary elaboration. Whereas with the mediumship accounts, uh, there was the mediumship accounts were almost more like the the, the medieval ones or something, um, and lots and lots and lots of uh, you know kind of creating these worlds, world building in a way where there's, uh, they describe things like ancient Greek temples and centers of learning, mm -hmm. um, a real sort of hierarchy of spirits, bureaucracy, um, 
it, it's not really a sort of ineffable mystical type of experience. It, it's like a mirror image of this world. Um, and, and that's taken to a, a real extreme in some of the Victorian and Edwardian accounts where they um, literally talk about, you know, this is a, this earth is, is the sort of lower level. And, and because most of this was from uh, England, it's, it's all about, you know, uh, put in an English context. So they would say, you know, this is the lowly level of, of England. And then above it in the spiritual realm, there's a more rarefied England. And then above that, there's an yet more rarefied. So you get to seven levels of, um, you know, these increasingly idealized Englands. Mm -hmm. And um, because of the cultural context of the time, there are also, unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, racist remarks. So they say things like, you know, black people live in their, their own segregated environment because they wouldn't be happy in, the, in a white man sort of atmosphere. Um, and various kinds of uh, classist sort of remarks, servants are not ready to be emancipated. So therefore, they, they still are our servants in the other world because they're happy doing it. Um, so it's this kind of uh, preserving the status quo of Victorian England, but making it better. Um, this stuff doesn't really happen in near-death experience accounts. I didn't really find it in the intermission memory accounts. So um, whether that's a case of you know the medium's mind filtering it or um, problems with communication, they, they kind of uh, come up with all these possibilities from uh, in the uh, psychical research of the time of of why you know there's there's these uh, kind of strange descriptions of the afterlife. Also things like. Uh, you know, Sir Walter Scott said that there's monkeys living in the sun, you know, just patently absurd, but also interesting mm -hmm. kind of descriptions. So um, those need to be explained, obviously, in a cultural, psychological sort of way. Um, but when you strip them, strip it all away, they're still leaving the body, going to through a realm of darkness, coming to a realm of light, um, spiritual beings. So... Um, so I think it's it's interesting in the sense they seem to be more culturally rooted than the other kinds of phenomena. Now, I know you spent a fair amount of time describing one of my favorite books, actually, mm -hmm. The Road to Immortality, right. which was uh, ostensibly dictated by the deceased Frederick Myers, the author mm -hmm. of Human Personality and its Survival After Bodily Death, right. uh, some 30 years after he died to an automatic writer named Gerald. Dean Cummins. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you spent a lot of time on it, and I think one of the reasons you did is because psychical researchers such as Sir Oliver Lodge, uh, the great physicist, took that book quite seriously. Yeah, they, they did on the one hand, but then sometimes on their, you know, in the SPR reports, they would leave out all of those descriptions because I think they recognized that um, they would need to grapple with the inconsistencies and the logical absurdities and all, all that sort of thing. So they, um, they kept them in, in separate book publications that were not necessarily, you know, rigorous research accounts. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that in itself, I think, is quite interesting. Even the scientists of the day saw a distinction between the veridical evidence they were claiming to get and these descriptions of, of afterlife realms. Well, I suppose part of the problem is because if you're in a, uh, a realm which is not our normal three-dimensional physical reality that mm -hmm. we experience through our external senses, mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be w what most mystics call ineffable. It's in right. ultimately not describable in the normal language that we use to describe physical objects. Exactly, yeah. And, and to me, um, accounts that uh, 
I don't know, fess up to that. People who say it was, you know, I can't describe it. It was this, you know, indescribable, mystical, cosmic experience. But I had these sorts of impressions of leaving the body and seeing light. That to me is more convincing than, you know, salamander flame beings on Venus or something, mm -hmm. um, or or whatever other kind of you know um, English cottages in the in the countryside. Uh, so. That's exactly, I think, why that a lot of those accounts are, are less convincing to me. You talked about the seven levels, and uh, right. that comes up in uh, the road to immortality. It comes up in other accounts as as well. It seems uh, there might be something to it. It's possible, yeah. And there's you know the seven heavens, and it comes it, it crops up in different religions. And whether it's seven or any other number seems less important than the idea that there are levels. Right. Or even the idea that it's um, intermediate states as in, as in Buddhism, for example. So it could be that. Um, it's just that, and, and another problem, I guess, is with near-death experiences, um, people who have NDEs, they only go a certain, to a certain um, barrier. Right. So it's normally considered the early stages of the afterlife. Right, right. So, so comparisons to NDEs reach that, that kind of limit, the, the same limit that the near-death experiencers reach because they're not going to go through all these different levels if such levels actually exist. Mm -hmm. so. Going back to the ancient Egyptians, mm -hmm. and, and perhaps you find the same thing amongst the Sumerians and other very early cultures, I'm not sure, but it seems pretty clear to me that the ancient Egyptians had many different words for what we sometimes think of as the soul, right. and the idea that different parts of the psyche or personality get split apart and they have different destinies in the afterlife. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's the name and the shadow and um, the ba and the ka. And one of them is the life force and one of them is the personality. Yeah. And they, they do have um, different destinations. But it seems that um, the closest to what we would consider the consciousness or the soul that would survive in a, you know, aware, conscious, lucid state would be would be the Ba. So and that's the one that's sort of described as having the types of afterlife experiences I described, such as meeting Osiris and all that. Another unusual feature that I found in, um, I'm going to say Myers' book, the Myers Cummins book, The Road to Immortality, is, is the idea that it, at some level, I forget which one, uh, it is that you encounter the group soul. You realize that right. you're united at the soul level with perhaps as many as a thousand other people. Yeah, that's and that's interesting because that um, that's an idea that's also f that's found in Mahayana Buddhism, the idea of a mind-dependent afterlife, where basically the consciousness exists and it's creating this other environment uh, together with the souls of other conscious beings. Mm -hmm. um, and then that also was um, there was a philosopher from Oxford, H. H. Price, who in the 1950s wrote a really interesting paper about that and. To his way of thinking, um, that was the most reasonable way of explaining afterlife beliefs and and just conceiving of what an afterlife could possibly be like. And he actually referenced some of the um, psychical research and, and mediumship studies, so, you know, noting that um, they got to the same kind of conclusion that he did. Well, it's interesting because my own dissertation advisor at Berkeley, Michael Scriven, studied with Price oh, at, at, at Oxford. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, Price also suggested 
think it was Price, who suggested that the afterlife is very much akin to the dream world. Right. Yeah. And I, um, they didn't have the concept of lucid dreaming back then, um, at least not in that term. Just like with near-death experience, they've existed since the beginning of history, but they weren't known as near-death experience until Raymond Moody in 1975. So lucid dreaming didn't become like a, you know, a, um, a public popular buzzword until what seventies or eighties. So, um, but yeah, I think, uh, lucid dreaming is probably the, the most compelling model for me about what an afterlife could possibly be like, but possibly lucid dreaming, um, in a group sort of context, because that would account for the, the similarities across cultures, because, you know, you're, you're, um, creating this dream world, in conjunction with the souls of other people who presumably have a kind of like-minded um, background or history. Uh, but at the same time, uh, everyone's different. So you maybe you're all perceiving it in slightly different ways at the same time as well. You point out that there are many uh, explicit descriptions of the near-death experience coming out of ancient China. Right. There's a lot of um, yes, yeah, supposedly documentary ancient Chinese NDEs. Um, and they're interesting because they, um, once again, very much reflect the culture in which they occur. So there's a lot of bureaucracy in Chinese NDEs. And, you know, you go there and there's a, a guy with a clipboard and kind of <laughs> reviewing your life and all your deeds. And there's judges and it's a very kind of, um, you know, strict system. Mm -hmm. And um, some of those NDEs are also interesting because um, they show how that bureaucracy can sometimes fail. So they got... Um, there's cases of mistaken identity where they got the wrong person. So, and the reason for that person's NDE is that um, they're told, you know, we got the wrong Jeff Mishlove. So, <laughs> so we're going to send you back and get the the one that lives in, you know, Washington or wherever. Uh -huh. So, so that person gets to have an NDE, come back to life, and then the other one, um, you know, is is brought to the Chinese judges. I, I know in many of the NDE cases you describe, the person is sent back often reluctantly. They don't want to return. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, you know, the their dead body is already beginning to putrefy. Right. Uh, but uh, they're told that it's their mission to go back and share this knowledge with other people. Yeah, and this is something that um, interestingly occurs in a lot of Native American NDEs from you know the 19th century and, and earlier that um they're told first of all the the thing that their bodies started to putrefy um i don't necessarily buy that but i think it's um intended to show the listeners that this was such a genuine experience this person was so totally dead um and came back to life to you know, exaggerate the the you know miraculousness mm -hmm. of the account in order that they're um uh, the message that they're bringing back will be taken seriously. I took it to mean something a little different, that maybe even a sleeping body uh, is somehow uh, gross and uh, right. unattractive when you're in the spirit realm. Yeah, yeah, that's true too. And, and even in contemporary NDEs, so many accounts, people say things like, um, I looked down and I saw this cold, horrible, painful thing. And I was just so reluctant to get back into it. And it just, the prospect was repulsive. Um, 
you know, that just recurs through so many NDEs throughout history. It's, it's really interesting. Another fascinating finding I found in your recent book is, is the idea that in some cultures, I believe, for example, the Australian Aboriginal culture, uh, which is a long-lasting culture for thousands of years, but they don't particularly report near-death experiences. Right. Yeah, that was an interesting discovery. Um, they report a lot of shamanic experiences that seem to correspond almost exactly to NDEs. Um, to the extent that I started wondering, maybe the reason they're not reporting NDEs is because they're reporting them as shamanic experiences. And uh, the fact that the person had that experiences, uh, experience, they basically become a shaman by virtue of it. So it's kind of, um, I think it's probably the same kind of experience, but they're recontextualizing it as, a, um, as, as shamanism rather than this um, spontaneous phenomena that happens. In other words, the shaman uh, participates in a ritual of some sort and then visits the underworld or the higher worlds. Right. But, but possibly the first time that happened, um, it might have been spontaneous. Mm -hmm. And because of that, and they come back then um, and, and tell of the experience, then they're considered to be a shaman. And that's, you know, possibly what, um, yeah, accounts for that, that lack of, of, documentary NDEs. Well, I also got the impression from your book that in the, the cultures that don't emphasize the NDE, what they do emphasize is a sense of possession where uh, right. the spirits in, it come here. We don't have to go there because they're, uh, they come here in various ritual forms and uh, possess the shamans. Yeah, or they're um, just kind of living near the village um, in the woods or, or whatever. Um, and the focus on the afterlife is less on the other world, some other state of being, and it's more on earthly life here. Not only just daily survival, but um, uh, either propitiating these spirits of the ancestors or um, avoiding them or, or whatever, because they can be malevolent or, or benevolent. Um, but yeah, as far as uh, possession goes, that it, a lot of African societies, um, there's some accounts from Melanesia and Micronesia, different places around the world, even a couple from uh, Native American cultures, um, but predominant, predominantly in Africa, when a body comes to comes back to life, when a person has, uh, you know, supposedly has a near death experience, um, they're not going to be welcomed with open arms, and and you know, their family rushing to them and saying, oh, I'm, "This is a miracle. I'm so glad you're back." The attitude was more like. Um, the dead shouldn't be coming back to life because they're dead. Therefore, they're either a subject of possession or witchcraft or they've become a zombie or something like that. So they're a threat to the community, a threat to the natural order. So we need to avoid them. And we're certainly not going to listen to them talking about this glorious experience and, you know, incorporate that into our beliefs. So, so that's why I think um, a lot of beliefs in these cultures don't reflect near-death experiences when they talk about the afterlife. So it's almost like the exceptions that prove the rule. Well, I also have the sense, and I'm certainly no expert in this, that in the Australian Aboriginal culture, there's a big emphasis on uh, what they call the dream time. And right. that suggests to me that even in their daily life, they feel very close to the, to the realm of dreams. And I think we can safely say, especially because of the explorations 
hundreds of Jungian psychologists, uh, including Carl Jung himself, that there's a strong overlap between the dream world and, and what the Tibetans called the bardo planes. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think there's uh, less of a distinction um, between states of consciousness, maybe. Mm -hmm. So, so um, you know, as we're sitting here talking in this very physical realm and, you know, I drove here on the freeway and all this kind of, um, you know, we have this completely different view of this reality than my reality six hours ago when I was asleep and having a dream. Whereas in other cultures, um, I think that might be a, that boundary might be a little more porous and they're maybe more aware of um, the possibility of, you know, different entities in different worlds around them. One of the features you describe in the ancient cultures of Sumeria, in Egypt, one certainly finds it in Christianity, is this cycle of death and rebirth. Right. The, the, the deities are known to die and then come back. Mm -hmm. uh, Osiris does it, Inanna does it in, right. in, in Sumeria. Of course, Jesus does yeah. the, the same thing. It seems to be... Uh, a, a common theme, and it seems to suggest that this is also the fate of the average person, at least the average person who is good or who is a believer. Right. Yeah. The um, Epic of uh, Gilgamesh is another good example, but um, the Sumerian version, he's called Bilgamesh, and it's even more ancient. And, and there is possibly the world's first near-death experience in, in that text where, you know, he um, is on his deathbed and he wakes up in this other realm and there's these um, judge type figures and they review his life and he comes back as a, as a changed person. Um, and yeah, so this is part of the whole, um, yeah, dying and rising gods phenomena as, as they used to call it, um, which um, considering that, that these people, these gods were considered to have once been humans on earth, they, they very likely could point to some you know, near-death experience that they had that was gradually mythologized uh, throughout the centuries. Would you say that because of the enormous cultural overlay that it's inevitable when anyone tries to describe such an experience, they have nothing to work with but the language of, of their own culture mm -hmm. and the metaphors and uh, ways of thinking that come culturally. In order for us to create what I called an afterlife geography, mm -hmm. we somehow have to I guess I would say filter out the cultural overlay, uh, but there is also another way of looking at it. Uh, Jeffrey Kripal once expressed it to me this way. He, he said that we actually, uh, f through our beliefs and expectations, we are changing the afterlife mm -hmm. itself, that the afterlife is conditioned by our cultural expectations. Right. I think that's that's exactly it, and and that goes back to H. H. Price and the whole lucid dreaming thing. Um, if if we are self creating the afterlife, um, especially together with with other souls, that to me can explain all the cultural similarities and, and differences, because um, you know going back to the earliest days of of near death studies, there's been this kind of quest to find the common core that. Um, all near-death experiences share. And the first, that quest has proven to be fruitless because no two near-death near experiences are exactly alike. Um, some of those uh, differences are, are very clearly cultural. Like I said, the um, 
a mistaken identity reason for being sent back. Everybody's sent back, obviously, otherwise we wouldn't have these accounts. But the reason for being sent back is, is cultural. So whether those people in Asia are actually cases of mistaken identity, and that's the reason they're sent back, and people in the West are more often because they have some, or, or Native Americans, because they have some purpose to, to fulfill. Um, whether that's actually the case, you know, it's, it's difficult to say, or whether their consciousness is creating the reason why they're being sent back. Um, I, I don't, it's, it's difficult to say. Um, but I mean, even things like the life review, um, it's such a sort of uh, stereotypical element of an NDE. It's one of the main things that people think of when they think of near-death experiences. And there was that recent um, study that was published that the, there's a burst of brain activity um, at death, and some people speculated that that could possibly be, um, that's why we have life reviews. But life reviews are really, actually, even in the West, they're quite quite rare. Um, Cross-culturally, they're, I don't want to say non-existent, but they're extremely rare. So um, I don't think a life review is is as prominent and important an element of near-death experiences as, as say, um, you know, leaving the body, entering darkness, and seeing light. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, even those elements you're not going to find in every single NDE. Uh, part of the problem is uh, a lot of people don't describe leaving the body and seeing the body lying there. They will just say, I died and I was in another world. That doesn't mean they didn't have the out-of-body experience. It just means they didn't report it, possibly. I would assume that the exploration that we're talking about here, what we can learn about the afterlife, is probably in some ways akin to people six, seven hundred years ago exploring new continents. Mm-hmm. Europeans discovering North and South America, that these continents are vast. And uh, if you look at the accounts of the various explorers, yes, there are some similarities, but, uh, you know, the the ones who uh, explored the northern regions are going to be very different from the ones who are exploring around the equator. And the people they encountered were very different. And the lifestyles of the people they encountered were very different. Right. Yeah. I I ran across a quote the other day from somebody who who sort of in 19th century, and they imagined what the Arctic Circle might be like, and it was this paradise realm of green trees, and you know, mm-hmm. so it just come. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot of uh, imaginative overlay on, onto um, these kinds of speculations, but um, yeah, I think that's that's true, and it's it's telling that even after all this time, throughout you know the whole history of science, they still don't understand fully about consciousness. Mm-hmm. So let alone what happens to it after we die and what an afterlife could be like or anything else. So so in a way, it's um, – and given the um, – I don't know, the first word that came to mind is hostility, and that probably actually is an accurate word, um, that mainstream science um, – well, I, I even want to say certain areas of mainstream science have towards um, you know anything that has to do with the afterlife or um, anything seen as paranormal or spiritual. Um, you know, that's that's kind of – hindering and crippling um, our understanding of it. They treat it as if there's no evidence whatsoever. Right. And they also, um, when you have, you know, these valid mainstream scientists who have incredible backgrounds and, you know, um, spotless records of of research, um, as soon as they start investigating these areas, they're sort of dismissed by the rest of the scientific community and they become fringe. When, in fact, they're actually using the same 
methods and techniques and his historical knowledge and everything that um, they've been using the whole time. Well, you talked uh, quite a bit about the uh, 19th century mediumship, particularly in England, the Edwardian and Victorian periods. But there was another approach that I thought was rather rigorous and at least had the beginnings of uh, a scientific approach to it, the uh, spiritism of Allan Kardec. Right. Yeah, I don't. I haven't looked that much into that because um, it was just fi- sort of fell outside the boundaries of, of what I was doing. But as, as I understand it, he worked with uh, mediums, mm-hmm. and he generally felt if seven mediums all gave him a similar description of some element of the afterlife, uh, that he he would then accept that as valid because of the consensus. Right. Yeah, and that's a, a similar approach that um, Helen Wambach went to with the um, her past life regression ideas that if she, she didn't it wasn't a matter of um, you know deeply researching a particular case like Bridie Murphy or whatever and trying to trace a past personality it was more like looking at the um, you know like you said a consensus of what all of these people are saying and, and what they could you know, possibly point to as a reality. If I recall correctly, one of Helen Wambach's findings, she was a uh, hypnotic regression therapist, is that the past lives that people reported under hypnotic regression corresponded demographically mm-hmm. with the uh, population statistics right. uh, in earlier eras. So that th- there's sort of a myth about past life regression that everyone thinks they were Cleopatra or, right. or, or, or somebody famous. But Helen Wambach's research, and I, I think it had a sample of hundreds of people in it, uh, sort of refuted that notion. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. But at the same time, a lot of the past life regression cases to me, they're evidentially more along the lines of the mediumship stuff when it comes to afterlife descriptions because they're just, again, full of these extremely detailed, um, you know, bureaucratic, systematic, um, divine sorts of afterlife um, with all these hierarchies. And that they just don't ring, ring true to me in that way. They seem um, very culturally situated and very fictionalized, very non-effable, non-ineffable, non-mystical. Well, I used to be a past life regression therapist myself, and uh, one of the misgivings that I always had about it is the risk, it's not discussed very often in the literature, that the hypnotist or therapist is going to be, uh, in subtle ways, including telepathic, influencing the uh, person being hypnotized. Yeah. Yeah, and they say that with uh, mediumship studies as well. That this, the the experimenter effect mm-hmm. that the researcher is always going to yeah be be sort of uh, corrupting the data. So and and you can do that through very subtle things like just you know facial gestures you might not even be conscious of subtle signals. But uh, I do think in, in a context where you're putting somebody into a hypnotic trance, that the the possibility of telepathic exchange is pretty high. Yeah, that's that's you know very possibly the case. And you know that's all over the once again the mediumship studies. Then they they would talk about um, you know the sort of contamination yeah. and, and also of the of the. Um, control in the afterlife, um, their um, personality leaking through the medium together with the medium's personality. So it's really difficult to um, disentangle 
that mm-hmm. stuff, I think. And and to me, what what's really important about that is um, I think the um, spontaneous reincarnation cases, the children who remember past lives and near-death experiences are the two most evidential categories uh, from afterlife research. Mm-hmm. I think they... You know Ian Stevenson's work on reincarnation and just a lot of the the NDE studies. Um, I think it's the the most compelling of of all that um, um, evidence for the afterlife. Whereas mediumship, I think um, there's some interesting stuff uh, for sure, and, and I think a lot of it's unexplained. Past life regression, I think, is the le- the least amount of compelling evidence. So it's interesting that um, the uh, Intermission memories correspond most closely to NDEs, whereas the uh, regression cases and the mediumship cases probably correspond the least and, and have the most, the greatest amount of, you know, literary and cultural elaboration. You know, uh, as I recall, you did write about an interesting case of Brian Weiss, mm-hmm. who was a, a psychiatrist, a skeptical right. psychiatrist who... Uh, ended up hypnotizing one of his patients, taking her back into a past lifetime and then into the intermission uh, period. And it was then that uh, different voices came through her, as I recall, and began telling him about personal experiences in his own family, things that this patient of his could never have known in in great detail. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting case, but the you know for me the the problem with um, a lot of the past life regression also is you know putting on my skeptical hat. Um, they they didn't um, you know do EEG readings to make sure that these people were actually hypnotized. The the scientific protocols just kind of weren't really there. It's not clear that EEG really can distinguish between a hypnotic state and right. and, and many other states, but. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that that's been clearly identified yet. Okay. But just in general, I think um, you know th- that's a that's a good exception. The one, the Brian Weiss case you mentioned. But overall, um, to me, in the in the regression stuff, I just don't see a, a whole lot of evidence um, that that was at least got um, obtained under any kind of rigorous scientific. Well, and I think that would be the consensus of reincarnation researchers in, in general. They're much more interested in the reports coming spontaneously from young children. And, and the fact that, you know, from, just from my point of view, the, the way they correspond to the NDEs and the fact that these are, you know, children often in, you know, Lebanon or India or Sri Lanka or wherever, um, who are going to be less likely to have a popular, um, perception of NDEs. You know, they, they probably haven't read Raymond Moody or whatever, yeah. um, young children in the 70s or 80s um, in, these, in these other countries. So, um, so that's, that's quite compelling to me. Um, and, and I don't know if um, their parents would, would even have, you know, been able to feed them that, that sort of information and, and for what purpose, you know, why would they want it to correspond to an NDE? Now I'm thinking of Plato mm-hmm. and the story of air. Right. Uh, which comes up, if I remember rightly, in the Republic, and uh, it's it's a detailed account of a past life experience. I think Plato uses it to draw moral lessons mm-hmm. from it, which probably taints it. But you also suggest 
I think that uh, although we think of the ancient Greeks as the founders of Western civilization, in in some sense they're latecomers mm -hmm. to the, the story of civilization. That the ancient Greeks were probably influenced by both the Sumerians and the Egyptians. Yeah. That's a, an interesting example because that's very much to me the myth of error, like um, more like a, almost a medieval European. Um, other world journey mm -hmm. type type experience because it's so full of cultural elements. You know, he's got the Furies in there, and um, there's a reference to Orpheus. And so, I I don't think that um, that's necessarily a verbatim legitimate NDE, but I think it could very likely have been rooted in at least a, a story of a similar. Um, either there was a soldier named Air who had a, an NDE, and Plato just riffed on it, um, or. Uh, you know, th they obviously knew about NDEs, and there's there's quite a few other Greek and Roman examples of NDEs as well. There, there certainly are, but I guess your feeling is that the most reliable reports come from the oldest cultures where there was no prior precedent. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say the necessarily the most reliable because I, I wouldn't dismiss, you know. Even somebody who is who has you know, if you or I had an NDE, I wouldn't dismiss it just because we happen to know about them. But just as far as the you know the research protocol of trying to make sure that you know with the indigenous cultures, for example, um, I tried to focus on eras when there was the least amount of Christian influence or Muslim influence, depending on um, the area of the world. Or with the five civilizations I chose uh, for my first book, I wanted to make sure that they were all independent of each other. So you know, contrary to it. Ancient alien theorists believe um, there's no connection at all between the ancient Mayans and Aztecs and the ancient Egyptians, you know, just because they built pyramids. So, um, yeah, I wanted to, to uh, I guess, make sure that there was no connection in order to, to show that if there is a similarity between these cultures, it's not going to be a result of, you know, um, cultural diffusion. Well, one of the things I really enjoyed about your recent book, is, frankly, is the first chapter where you start out and talk about an ancient Chinese near-death experience, and then you say, well, 2,000 miles away and 600 years later, right. some other person came up with a report, and then again and again and again in very diverse cultures, right. uh, you've got these reports that all contain similar elements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also at the same time, very different ones, because to me the the differences are are just as as interesting, and I thought that was a good way to show, um, in a brief, succinct way, that um, anybody who thinks that near death experiences are a Western Christian sort of phenomena needs to look at this evidence because they obviously haven't seen it, and you still get people, um, you know, there there are people like. Uh, What's his name? Harris, the skeptic, um, and Sam Harris, yeah, uh, Keith Augustine, um, and then more sort of uh, people like Richard Gottlieb writing in the New York Review. Um, there are no cross-cultural near-death experiences. You know, it's like they're actually still saying this in 2022. So um, I just wanted to, uh, yeah, hammer that that home that um, this is not a Western phenomenon. The interpretation might be. Often I saw Jesus when actually what they saw was a being of light, which they interpreted as Jesus. Um, you know, there's these I saw heaven type books. And so we're obviously the, we're interpreting these experiences within a Western cultural, often Christian framework. But that doesn't mean that um, that framework created the experience or, or caused it to happen. 
Well, Gregory Shushin, what a pleasure to have this conversation with you. I get the feeling that you, you've done a vast amount of scholarship to bring all of this together, and, and yet at the same time, it's, it's like we're just beginning this exploration. There's so much more to learn. It's true. And, you know, the more I search for these experiences, uh, the more I find. So I'm, I'm doing a historical um, anthology of near-death experience from around the world. And I keep thinking, okay, I've, you know, I've reached the end of that. And then I look a little more and I find more. So it's, it's really a never-ending kind of subject. Well, Gregory, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Thank <music> you.